John chapter 19, we'll be looking at verses 31 through 42 in a few moments. But before we turn our attention to the message this morning, I wanted to take a a few moments to to make you aware of a couple things uh, that are coming down the pipe. First of all, some of you have heard me mention fairly recently, most of you have not, but uh, my wife and I have been praying concerning this. Uh, but at, at the end of May, we are taking our vacation time to, to do a family mission trip to Haiti. Uh, we'll be going down to uh, work on some uh, church planning process, doing some Bible clubs, uh, beginning some discipleship groups there as we move towards the, the launch of a, a, a church plant in Quadabake where we've been building the mission house for some time. Uh, as you're aware, back in, in March, uh, Jared and I went and did, did some teaching sessions. And then in October... Uh, we are planning another team trip to do some further construction, mainly focusing on building the outer security wall around the mission house. Uh, and so we encourage anyone who might have interest in participating in that trip to join us for that. We will be ha- having a, a meeting for anyone who might think that they are even the slightest bit interested, whether you would know for sure or not. We're going to be holding a meeting after the service on the 27th. Uh, we'll say more about that as next week and the, the week after. But I uh, hope you'll plan to maybe stay uh, to hear some details or some information if you think you might be interested in partici- participating with that. Uh, but in the meantime, we do ask that you would pray for my family and I as we make our preparations to make that trip and that we'll be leaving on May 19th. Um, <clears throat> in addition to that, I wanted to make mention, mo- most of you know that Dan Davis has been helping us out here for several weeks and will be for several more weeks in, in leading our worship um, and he and his wife have answered the call to, to depart from here, though they've only been back from China for a while. They were there for two years. Now they're, they are launching out into a church planting venture in Buffalo, New York. And so they have been working on raising support in this time. Uh, and if you're not supporting them yet, you might want to support them. Uh, I'm sure uh, Dan won't turn you down, so see him. But they are going to be launching in the first part of May. I don't have the exact date. But as he does that, we are planning. um, We're still working on some of the details. But we are going to most likely the week after Easter be holding an ordination service during our morning service uh, that day. In order to ordain uh, Dan uh, to the gospel ministry as we send him out uh, to serve the gospel of Jesus Christ there. And so I want you to be thinking about that, praying about that as that time approaches. And just wanted you to be a... A little bit aware of that. And then the last thing I wanted to share with you, though I'm not giving you details right now, is that we have been talking and planning and, and looking towards the summer. A lot of things change during the summer. So we, we're changing a little bit our normal um, schedule for of ministry uh, during the summer. We'll be posting some of those things that will be going on during the summer. But one of our things that we're trying to do is give a focus a little bit more towards uh, ministering outside of the walls of Riverside Church. And so uh, you'll hear more about that in the days to come, but just wanted to at least um, spark your interest. If you can't wait for us to make announcements, feel free to come see me or Jared, or, um, and we'll be glad to share with you. So uh, with that, we will turn our attention now to uh, our message this morning that I've entitled simply, Is He Dead? <clears throat> as you know, <clears throat> excuse me, as you know, death touches everyone. In some way or another, everyone in this room, everyone right now has been or will be impacted by death at some point in your life. If not someone else's death that you're you're, you're attached to, uh, you will be faced 
with your own at some point or another. But, however, for the sake of those who are left behind, who are left holding all the broken pieces when, when death comes to our, our families and, and through our friends, uh, those are the ones who, who remain here and, and go through that griev- grievously difficult time uh, in the aftermath of death. Tim and I <clears throat> had the opportunity last evening to spend uh, some time with a family who was recently impacted by the tragic loss of a man by the name of Frank Gwynn, who was a husband, a father, a son. And some of you may have heard about it or read about it, but he was tragically killed while preparing along with a, his brother-in-law for the half Ironman competition that was going on today in New Orleans. He was, him and his brother were practicing and cycling, and they became the victims of a car accident as a car ran up behind them and ran into them, killing Frank and leaving his brother-in-law, Andrew, in a life-threatening situation in the hospital even as we speak. And so we do, I mention this as a matter of prayer as well. But as Tim and I sat with this family and listened to their stories, we we couldn't help help but feel the, the senselessness and the horror of such a tragedy. And you've, you've heard stories probably like this before, maybe even been touched by them. And with death, in in any situation comes that desperate feeling of finality. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's just a a desperate, empty feeling of of finality. And everything that you and I know, everything that that we have experienced seems to come to a, a screeching halt with death. Death changes everything. Now sure, for everyone else, the world keeps spinning. Round and round. But, but for those who are personally impacted, it can seem like the world has come to an end. And there's absolutely nothing that you can do. Now, as I, I look out across this place even now, as I'm, I'm saying these things, I know some of us, you can see on some of your faces the, 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 the personal impact that death has made upon you. Some of you more deeply hurt than others. Some of us may be touched by it, but maybe at a greater distance. But some of us, so deeply cut. And we feel it. But see, Tim and I, after that, that time spent with that family, we left. And we went about our business. We had dinner. We talked about scripture. We talked about other things. And we went home and we went to bed. But that family is still, in this very moment, feeling the debilitating effects of their loss as they will for days and months and even years. It's easy, as we think about this ideal of death, it's easy for us to gather this morning and speak and and think about the death of Jesus Christ because we know the rest of the story, right? We know what we're going to talk about next Sunday. We know that he wouldn't stay dead for long. But in that moment, in those hours, in those, that, those days, Jesus Christ was really dead. He was gone. And those who had walked with him and, and those who had come to love him, they felt that, that piercing pain of loss in those moments following Christ's final words from the cross. They experienced this. Much the way you and I might. Their, their lifetime of experience that they themselves had lived taught them that death was final. 
Aside from the story we read in John about Mary and Martha's brother and their experience concerning Lazarus, every other person that had ever died was gone for good. And while many of these that we think about had sat under Jesus teaching about his own death, they hadn't grasped the reality that was to follow. They fully felt the pain of death. They fully felt the debilitating effects of of this loss when the one that they adored had breathed his last. Yet, even in the midst of all this great tragedy, God was at work transforming lives. Transforming the, the pain of death into a miraculous moment in history. God was doing what we often quote that Paul himself declares in in Romans 8.28. In the midst of all of life's circumstances, good or bad, we read that. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And God was doing that very thing in the midst of those hours following Christ's great cry from the cross. And what John records for us to read here in this passage concerning the time from Jesus' death on the cross until the dawn of the greatest day in history, in the history of the world, it seeks to remind us that even in the tragic experience of death, there is hope. Beautiful word, hope. And while that is true in the midst of our own experiences concerning death, nothing Absolutely nothing compares to the great hope that that God was fulfilling in the death and the burial of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So read with me these verses in John 19, 31 through 42. John writes, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look upon him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews... Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in that place... Where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. 
pray with me. Our Father, we do thank you for the privilege that is ours to, to take this time to hear your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have gifted to us the very word of God in the pages of the Bible. And so, Lord, I pray that in these moments we would, we would sit here not passively listening, but actively hearing Allowing your spirit to work in the midst of our hearts to, to, to convict us, to compel us, to, to challenge us, to impassion us concerning this, this reality that we, we claim to live for every day of our lives. And so, Father, as we look to these words found in this particular portion of Scripture, I pray that you would use them to speak to our lives where we are right now. And, And every single person in this room, Lord, is likely experiencing many different things. But God, by your spirit, I pray that you administer to our hearts. Not, not, Lord, for our, necessarily for our good, but for your glory. Knowing that your glory will bring about our greatest good. So, Lord, give us ears to hear in these moments. Give us eyes to see beyond what's just on the surface. And God, give us hearts, we pray, that would gladly and joyfully embrace your word and And want to broadcast it to the ends of the earth. Do your great work in us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the past year and a half or so, we have walked through John's account of the life of Jesus. And we have seen John reveal Christ to be the very Son of God. And we have sought to understand in, in the last several weeks the, in detail the implications of, of Jesus' unjust arrest, his trial and his crucifixion as he cried out his final great declaration that we looked at last week. It is finished. And now in, in light of all that John has revealed to us to this point, John now seeks to continue to, to unpack or reveal through the narrative story of Christ the significance of these final moments prior to the soon-to-be-realized resurrection. And in this portion of John's gospel, or his account, we find Jesus still upon the cross. He's died, but he's, he's still, still hanging upon that cross. And, and we see that even in his death, even during those moments, after he bowed his head and gave up the Spirit, Jesus continues to fulfill his appointed task of fulfilling God's great eternal plan in accordance to the scripture. And even in his burial, Jesus reveals his life-transforming power. So in light of John's account, I want us to consider three truths that flow from within this text this morning concerning Jesus' death and his burial. First, we'll look at Jesus' death was verifiable. Then Jesus' death was scriptural. And finally, Jesus' death was transforming. First of all, we we consider the fact that Jesus' death is is absolutely verifiable. We have seen in these these last few weeks the irony irony with which John seeks to present the trial and the death of Christ. I mean, along the way, John continually presents this, this kind of subtle irony in the midst of it. Because while unjustly condemning Jesus, the the Jewish leaders, these are the religious folks, they were unwilling, if you remember, to enter a Gentile house, Pilate's house. They would not go in there for fear of defiling themselves before God. 
great irony exists there. Then, when given by Pilate the opportunity to release one criminal, as was the custom, the Jews cried out, Give us Barabbas! And we find that chapter 18 ended with that irony statement. Now, Barabbas was a thief. Such irony in, in, in the actions and, and what was going on. Now, following the death of Jesus, their hypocrisy yet continues. It was unlawful, according to Jewish law, to to leave the dead upon the cross during the Sabbath. So it was the Jews, these same ones who cried out for his crucifixion, who now petitioned Pilate to have the criminal's legs broken, which would hurry along their death and allow them then, then to be removed from their crosses before sundown on Friday evening, which began the Sabbath. And so they would maintain their their religious customs, their religious tradition, their They're pleasing actions before their God. In the course of conveying these events, John uses two specific occurrences to establish the reality of Jesus' death. First, in keeping with tradition, as requested by the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers approached the crosses with the intentions of breaking the legs of the criminals. And doing so would make it much more difficult for these these criminals upon the cross to, to pull or push themselves up into a position that would allow them to then inhale, thus keeping them alive. Once the legs were broken, they would only be able to use the strength of their arms to pull themselves in that position. In due times, the arms would grow too fatigued to allow them to continue to do that very thing. And these men would ultimately die of asphyxiation. Now, upon approaching the two criminals on the side, the Bible tells us, John tells us, they broke the legs. But then upon approaching Jesus, John records, the Roman soldier concluded that Jesus had already died. He was dead, and therefore, it was unnecessary to break his legs to, for that purpose. And then second, so as not to be guilty of making a a wrong judgment. I mean, a Roman soldier would not want to assume death and then be mistaken. So just in case, the Bible tells us that the soldier then pierced Jesus' side to ensure and verify that he was, in fact, dead. It was at this point in our text that John conveys an eyewitness statement. He inserts this little statement in here um, in... I lost my verse. In verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. So John inserts this eyewitness statement. He declares that that there was one who saw Jesus' side pierced. He he personally witnessed this. He saw it happen and and as a response he saw the the blood in the water that that flowed from the wound implying certain death. John further declares then that this witness was in fact true. And it was likely that John did so because as we've mentioned on many occasions it was most likely that John himself was that witness and and could declare the eyewitness testimony, testimony to be true with absolute certainty. Because he himself had witnessed it. But then John then adds the purpose statement to this eyewitness account. He says, 
that you also may believe. So this eyewitness is, is there. He was there. He saw it. And his testimony is true. And, and it's certain. He knows that it's true. So that you may believe. Now that statement at the end, that purpose statement, raises the question, believe what? What is it that John writes this for us to believe? What is it he is driving at? Is John seeking to use this, these accounts, this account of this, what happened upon the cross, in order to... To convince us to believe that Jesus was truly dead? Or was his point that we might believe that Jesus was in fact everything that John has recorded in his gospel, indeed the the savior of the world? And as is often the case when John raises some of these ambiguous statements, the answer is yes. Which is it? Yes. You see, in writing this gospel after the fact, for John wrote this gospel much later, John's clear intention was, was, in fact, to convince sinners about who Jesus was so that they too might believe in Jesus as Savior of the world and thus be saved. We know that for certain was John's goal. That particular belief in who Jesus was and what he came to do requires that one believes that Jesus actually died upon that cross for the sins of the world. To not believe that is not to believe the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, John records these two proofs in this part of his account of the gospel message. Uh, these proofs of, of Jesus' death in order to both convince us that Jesus was actually and really dead and to convince us that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the very Son of God who would die for the sins of the people. And John's attempt to convince us of Jesus' death becomes significant. Why, why would John seek to go to, to links to, to, to convince us he was dead? Well, it becomes significant in light of some of the proposed myths that surround the subsequent resurrection of Jesus because there are those, even today, who would seek to argue that Jesus never actually died but was merely rendered unconscious. So he was very sick, hung on a cross, stabbed in the heart, so he was in bad shape, but he never actually died. Therefore, his resurrection was only an illusion because Jesus was never really dead. The miracle of the resurrection hinges upon the actual death of Christ. If he didn't really die, then our hope is kind of in vain. John's account declares that any other version other than the actual and real death of Jesus upon that cross, is completely and absolutely implausible. Jesus' death was verified by Gentile Roman soldiers who attended the cross and their lives depended on their judgment. And it was verified by a Jewish eyewitness standing by. In this case, we believe to be John himself. And to any reasonable person, Jesus was dead. Really dead. But not only does John's account seek to, to show us that Jesus' death was verifiable, but that Jesus' death was, in fact, scriptural. In addition to John's account of these two verifiable facts, John offers us the reason why these things took place. For he writes in verse 36, For these things took place that, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. We've seen this numerous times, especially in the account of Jesus' crucifixion. 
And John then provides for us the particular scripture to which he is referring. Now, this is not the only scripture to which these these activities, these events refer back to that were written beforehand. But these are two particular ones that John uses to prove the fulfillment of scripture. First, John quotes Psalm 34, 20. Now, you may remember if you were here, but as we considered this particular psalm several weeks ago, we saw that David writing that psalm was speaking as a prophet, foreshadowing this very event upon the cross. You see, in that psalm, and you're welcome to go back and read it, David spoke of the righteous one whom God would preserve. The psalm states that God would keep all his bones and not one of them would be broken. Now, again, if you want further detail on that particular message, you can go back and listen to that sermon online. It was probably three, four, five weeks ago. But David's words in that psalm were, if you remember, a reference to the Passover lamb instructions found in Exodus 12 and Numbers chapter 9, where it states that the bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken, ultimately further casting Jesus upon the cross as the Passover lamb that would deliver God's people. John continues by adding another reference to his account. The reference comes from Zechariah 12, verse 10. And he includes a portion of that that simply states, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. In that passage, the prophet Zechariah is speaking about the salvation that God will bring to his people. Zechariah 12.10 states in full, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me... Now notice the person here. It's God speaking. So that when they look on me, and then he changes, he says, On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. You see, while the Roman soldiers who were present that day attending Jesus' crucifixion were were completely ignorant of the events that were unfolding on that particular day, God was bringing about all his eternal purposes by the hands of these unaware men doing what he so often does. And through their actions, God was affirming once again that this unjustly crucified man was none other than the very one that scripture had been pointing to all along. Jesus Christ revealed himself to be the Messiah throughout his ministry and life. And now even in his unresponsive flesh that had succumbed to death, Jesus Christ was still hanging on a cross, declaring himself to be the one and only Savior of the world of which Scripture had long foretold. But then finally, and probably most amazing in this passage, we find that Jesus' death not only verifiable and that it was scriptural, but Jesus' death was transforming. It was a transforming act in itself. And we're not even to the resurrection yet, but his death was that. John turns our attention now in this passage to the preparation of Jesus' body for burial and to the burial itself. One might wonder, if you're like me, you might wonder, why would John provide us with all these little details, these, you know, that we don't really completely understand because it's not our custom to do things this way. Why would he include all these particulars in his gospel? 
And in short, or in short manner, the burial assumes what John has been trying to to push so far. Burial assumes death. You don't bury people who are living. Well, at least you shouldn't. It's not typical that we put somebody in the ground. If you have at any point in your life, or maybe more recent than you like, stood at the, the foot of a grave and watched a body lowered into that grave, there is something very impacting in that moment. There are many people in the midst of death who, who push the reality and the busyness of their schedule and trying to get everything lined up in that moment of a body, of their loved one going into the ground. Something clicks. You can see it in their faces. It's real. They're dead. And John's account of this burial is that very proof. This is real. This is really happening. Jesus is really dead. Interesting enough, Paul, in his most succinct statement concerning the gospel, chooses to include this particular detail in the most fundamental details of the gospel message when he writes, For I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is... No small matter that Jesus was buried. He was placed in a tomb. It served as the final proof of the awful reality that then served as the precursor to the greatest event in all of history. But maybe the more striking issue at this point are the men that John includes in this account. Before we read of a man named Joseph of Arimathea and a man named Nicodemus. Both these men, Joseph and Nicodemus, were elite members of the Jewish order, very likely high-ranking Pharisees themselves. They are, in, in, in a very general sense, they are the most unlikely candidates to perform this particular task. They're not the ones you would think would be doing this very thing. A task that was of supreme urgency. We find as the scripture moves through it very quickly. Sunset was drawing near. And the body had to be discarded before the Sabbath began at 6 o'clock on Friday evening. Or else the Jewish ceremonial law would not be upheld. And hey, God would be displeased with these Jews. Or so they thought. Therefore, whatever was going to be done must be done quickly. But note the description in the text that John uses to characterize these two men. Joseph is characterized as a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Nicodemus is referred to as the one who came to Jesus by night, revealing his own attempt at secrecy in his encounter with Jesus, which we Read about back in John chapter 3. Both of these men are most likely the kind of people that John has in mind, among others, but definitely these, when he writes in John chapter 12. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put 
out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These are their testimonies. Joseph and Nicodemus believing the the miracles, believing the words, but unwilling to say, I believe because they love the glory of man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, while these men came to follow Jesus at some point, they were unwilling to do this openly. They, something kept them from doing it. And at, at least until this point, while the majority of those who followed Jesus openly were nowhere to be found, these two men who had previously been unwilling to identify themselves with Jesus, were now stepping into the light. They no longer placed the glory that comes from man above the glory that comes from God. They were fully identifying with this crucified criminal, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the very Son of God. But why now? What does it matter? I mean, the man who they would not willingly... Identify with while he was doing all the wonderful things that he did during his ministry was now dead. So what was the point? It would seem that even in the death of Jesus, Jesus possessed the power to radically and amazingly transform lives. And if his death, think about this, if his death, while he was dead, his body was lifeless... If during that time he had the power to transform lives, the secret followers uh, who love the glory of man into those who would love the glory of God more. If he possessed that power, imagine, just imagine for a moment, what might happen if he rose from the dead? So these newly transformed men, they take care to offer this traditional burial rites to Jesus. Something that was not afforded to a criminal who was hung upon a cross. They were often discarded into a mass grave and forgotten. But they take the time to give him these rites. And to place him in what John tells us to be a nearby tomb where no one had previously been laid. It was a new tomb. In a garden. A tomb where there could be no mix-up in identifying its contents. I mean, there could be no confusion about who might be missing if one of the bodies just turned up gone. A tomb that would soon never be forgotten. A garden tomb that would be the focus of the entire world come Sunday morning. In the last moments of Jesus' life, He declared all things to be finished. In the intervening hours between his death and his burial, he fulfilled the scripture that had for long spoken about him. In his death and burial, even then, he was transforming lives. In the moments between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning, the entire world, in a sense, came to a halt, at least for those who knew and loved Jesus, because death was final, or at least so they thought. I mean, every great teacher, every great leader that you could even possibly think of, eventually died, as did this one. Only, this one was 
slightly different. You see, for this one, death could not defeat him. And for this one, the grave could not hold him. He would prove to be more than any one of them or any person throughout history could ever have imagined. I mean, who would have thought? In death, there is hope. Because of Christ's death, we ourselves can face death and live. We can suffer the pains of the death of those whom we love and and look beyond the grave to, to something much greater. We can face our own death, which is imminent, which will happen to all of us someday. And we can see something much more glorious than this present life in which we live. That is, of course, if our hope is in him. You see, there are many who face death with great despair. You probably know some of them. They suffer the loss of their loved ones and and can only view it as absolutely final. That's all they can see. They face the threat of their own death and they see no hope, no future. And they're right. They're absolutely right. Because apart from Christ, there is absolutely no hope. There is only despair. There is only the threat of eternal existence apart from the favorable presence of Jesus Christ in the place that the Bible calls hell. But it doesn't have to be that way, does it? It doesn't have to be that way. Paul writes in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, while I partly know the answer to this question, I I still have to ask it. Why would anyone, why would anyone persist in their sin? Why would anyone persist in rejecting the, the Savior of the world? Why? And I'll never be able to wrap my mind around that reality. Why would you? Maybe you are this morning. Maybe you're one of them. Why would you persist in that way? And the Bible says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Believe that Jesus Christ is everything that he first claimed to be and then declared himself to be through proof. He is, in fact, the Savior of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I praise the Lord this morning that he is every bit of that for me. And I pray that he is every bit of that for you. And if he's not, I say simply that he can be. Repent and believe. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the beauty of the gospel story. While I recognize that we are incapable of fully wrapping our, head, our minds around the, all the details that, that unfold in this, this gospel account. Father, I rejoice this morning for that which we are, are able to understand. For that which we are able to to read and and comprehend. That which penetrates our heart and and brings conviction or or thrills us because of the beauty of the gospel. And I pray this morning that that would be true for your people here today. I pray for those who who believe, those who are yours. That as we consider this this reality of of your death on behalf of sinners like us. that, That we would every bit feel the weight and the grief that would that comes as a result, but but even more than that, we would recognize the joy and the thrill of knowing you as a result. 
I pray, I pray that this wouldn't just be the, the story that we rehearse year after year at a particular time of year, but rather that it would be a very real and impassioned story for us every single day of our lives. Thrill our hearts with your glory. And Father, I pray for those who might be here this morning who, for whatever reason or another, persist in their sin, refuse to repent, Choose the life in this world over the life that you have offered. Real life through your very real death and subsequent resurrection from the grave. I pray this morning you would penetrate hearts. You would convict them, Lord. You would draw them to the cross as only you can do. Open their eyes to the glory of the gospel. Open their, their, their ears to hear the, the call of the Spirit. Open their hearts to cause them to want to run joyfully and gladly to the foot of the cross, bowing in repentance and belief of this wonderful story that we call the gospel. Father, do as you will in our hearts this morning. But I pray you would not leave us as we were when we came in, but change us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.